invite you uh, to turn with me in the Bible to uh, Psalm 97. Psalm 97. I can't tell you how much joy this brings me to be here with you this morning to see this church thriving. Uh, Alex, to see you again and uh, thank you for the honor of allowing me to preach in your pulpit. I, I will tell you, I'd rather hear you preach this morning. Um, <laughs> And uh, I will also say that just uh, participating in worship as you were leading really stirred my soul for God. So thank you. And for the musicians and others who are leading, uh, this is such a season of honor to the Lord in this congregation. And so I am so glad to be here. I, uh, as I said, I'm so glad to see the church doing so well. And also, let me move this down just a bit, maybe we'll bump. Uh, it's great for me to be able to catch up with some of you. Can you hear that okay? In the, not or yes. Some are saying no. Some are saying no. Okay. How about that? Okay. Um, it is really good to catch up with some of you that I just haven't seen in a long time. And, and uh, I hope you know, I hope you can tell that I just love this congregation and uh, for all kinds of reasons, not just because some of you have been so dear to me and to my family for so many years, and some of you really have. Uh, we, we have deep connections with so many here but also because uh, you are a wonderfully unique congregation in this denomination, and I, you probably don't even know that. Um, you are doing in this community what churches around the world in every town should be doing, and that is meeting the needs of your neighbor. And uh, you are providing uh, for people in all kinds of ways. If someone needs food, you provide it. If someone needs comfort, you take the time to care. And if someone needs to be introduced to the Savior, you share the glorious news of the gospel, the glorious news of a Savior who came to wipe away every tear, to make everything new, and to cleanse us from everything that we've ever done that was contrary to his word and his life. You are really, in this community, continuing the ministry of Jesus Christ, and that is what the church is called to do. And you're doing so in a way that uh, you probably don't even know, but it is so beautiful to your Heavenly Father because you are a picture. And I, I mean this. I mean, it, it, there are so few PCA congregations I can stand up and say this. But you are a picture of the heavenly congregation that is to come, the great multitude described in Revelation from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Uh, your diversity demonstrates to a world that is terribly broken and terribly fractured that there is one who tears down every barrier and unites us in himself. And that one, of course, is Jesus Christ. The world desperately needs to see this. I wish right now the world could see this congregation, see the diversity that's represented here worshiping as one in Jesus Christ. And quite frankly, our nation needs to, th to see this. We are as divided in our country as we have ever been, and we all saw that on the election. We know that. You know that. Our country knows that. And quite frankly, uh, so many people are concerned about going ahead, not because of the choice of one president or another, but because of the fact that even our political uh, folks on both sides of the aisle can't work together. There is division that is harming this country, and the world needs to see this. You're one. I think it's more important than ever before that we in the church show the world that there is unity in Christ, that we can be one in Christ in spite of different 
ethnic backgrounds, in spite of different socioeconomic backgrounds, in spite of different political affiliations and different political agendas. Now, having said all that, having said all that, I know that there are some of you here today who are thrilled with the results of Tuesday's election. And there is a renewed sense of hope for you that the next four years will be a wonderful season in this country. I also know that there are others of you in this church who are discouraged, maybe even devastated by the election. And you're concerned that the next four years are going to be worse, perhaps, than ever. Fearful, I would say, would describe some of you. Elated would describe others of you. So what I want to do this morning in the time we've got is to speak to both, to try to say what the Word of God has to say for all of us, because it is the Word of God that focuses us, it keeps us focused on the only ruler, the one ruler who can bring about what every one of us longs for, no matter whether we side with one party or the other. The one ruler who can bring about perfect righteousness and justice in this land, and that is Jesus Christ. Look with me at Psalm 97. We're going to begin in verse 1. And uh, bear with me as we go through this. What I want to do is kind of slowly go through the passage and describe various aspects of what are going on here. And now um, just kind of think of me as Alex in his seminary garb. I'm going to be a little bit more professorial for for a few minutes. Uh, But let me just walk through the psalm, Psalm 97, beginning in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Now, what you have here is the writer of this psalm starting off with the confident assertion that regardless of what is going on in the world, there is one who reigns over all. And he makes the point here that he reigns to the many coastlands, or in the NIV it says, uh, to the distant shores. In other words, what he's saying is the reign of our king, the one true king, reigns far beyond just Israel, far beyond Huntsville, to every shore. He is the one ruler. He is the one we can depend on. And so because of him, then he starts off by saying, we can rejoice in the king. Now, the power here that's described, and we're going to see more about this as we go, is not just a a reign of power. It's not just power. It's also a beautiful reign that, as we'll see, is a reign that will bring about in this land. It is a, a promise of the Lord that one day we'll see what we all long for And that is absolute righteousness, absolute justice in this country and around the world. One day there will be no more suffering, no more oppression, no more injustice, no more wickedness, only what is good because it comes from the good king who is working out his purposes on this earth. Now, verse 2, and I want you to listen to the language here because this is very specific language and it's almost terrifying, quite frankly, in parts of it. But listen to it. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. What the psalmist is doing here is describing, he's using language that describes times when God himself would appear on the earth. And it was a terrifying thing because he is pointing forward to one day when Christ will come again and not only extend his righteousness, but also judge all that is wicked. And for those who don't repent, it is a terrifying thing. And so he's using very descriptive language to remind us that there is righteousness, there is, uh, there is this great awe-inspiring time, and for those of us who know the Lord, there will be nothing but rejoicing. For those of us who have rejected the Lord, there will be nothing but terror, because the God that we worship 
is king and is ruling over this entire world. Now, verse 6. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. In other words, here, right now, those of us who know the Lord, we can look into the heavens and we can see that God is king because we see that there is something going on that no man, no woman could possibly uphold. And that is a world with planets that are in orbit and beautiful stars and the sky and the trees and people. We see beauty and we recognize that there's a creator. And yet, for those who don't know the Lord and don't look into the heavens and recognize the glory of God, there is a time coming when even those who have rejected God will, when Christ returns, see Him for who He is, the great King over the entire world, even though they will then be judged. Now, verse 6, excuse me, verse 7. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Here, in response, in other words, to the, the picture of God coming in his reign of righteousness, which is at, at the same time both beautiful and terrifying, in response to that awe-inspiring revelation of our king, there should be widespread, widespread repentance. There should be widespread turning away from everything that we tend to trust in that are what Jesus calls these worthless idols from anything and everything we put our hope in rather than God. Even the so-called gods here, which may refer, probably refer to the angels, are called to worship the king who is indeed ruler over all. Number eight, Zion hears and is glad and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You were exalted far above all gods. Now, here, what is so beautiful is what the psalmist is doing is returning to the theme he began with. He began with rejoicing. Why do we rejoice? Because there is a king in the heavens who is far above every king, every president we have ever known. And he is ruling. And what he does as for his people is that he promises provision and protection. And he give us, gives us taste even now of what is to come. Hence, of the light and joy that will be ours when his glorious reign is finally fully established on this earth. And as we realize this, we give thanks to the one who would do such a thing for us. He truly does reign. And he reigns for our good, no matter who is in public office in this land or in anywhere else. Verse 10. O oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you his righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Well, I've read that, I think, twice now, so I won't repeat what I was going to say there. Um, would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we need you. And we need to see this morning your righteous reign. And we need to trust in you. Forgive us for where we fail to trust in you. Forgive us for where we fail to recognize that you alone can bring us what we long for in this land and in our own hearts. Lord, turn us away from idols. Cause our hearts to be solely focused on the one who can provide everything we long for, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, let me tell you a little bit about me and my own history with um, the political system. I uh, 
when I first got out of college, I remember being exhilarated because of the president that had just come into office. I remember thinking, uh, this is going to be, you know, at least four years of wonderful advancement of the kingdom of God because here's a president who, at least whether he's a Christian or not, seems to believe in righteous principles. And I'm hoping, I'm thinking that he actually will bring about uh, advancement in terms of, you know, making the laws of this land more righteous than they had been in the past. So I was, I was thrilled about this. I remember as a, I was in business at the time and I had this man's, this president's picture hanging in my office. I was so excited about what this man was going to do. And I even thought, gosh, for the only time in my life, I wouldn't even mind being involved in politics if I could serve his presidency. Well, I knew nothing about politics, and I had no business even thinking that. But I was just so excited about that. Well, if I go forward about uh, three or four terms from there, a man is elected to president uh, uh, that I didn't think much of. This was a number of years ago. I didn't think much of his moral character. I didn't think much of what he would enact in terms of laws in this country. And I remember being devastated. Uh, by this new president and thinking, what is going to happen to our country now? The kingdom of God is going to go backwards in our land. Well, let me just tell you, I was, the word is stupid, I think. <laughs> um, I was wrong in a couple of counts, uh, one of which was that I too closely tied the righteousness of God to a particular political party. Amen. And God would never do that. And we can't do that. Uh, God is not a Democrat and he's not a Republican. He's pretty, he's, he is the epitome of being independent. He is the independent. <laughs> uh, amen. Well, you know, the, the wonderful thing about that is his righteousness transcends by so far either party's level of righteousness. And we know that. Uh, and we are not to try to conform him to our poor understandings of righteousness, we are to conform to his understanding of righteousness. Um, He is God, we are not, and we are to follow him. I want to think about this, though, in very practical ways and see how we tend to, at times, um, maybe seek to hold God captive to our political party's agenda. Uh, A wrong thing to do, but we do this by default at times. You know, it's it's absolutely wrong for us ever to claim that our party represents God. It just does not. Um, one pastor recently put out uh, in his blog a very, very helpful uh, statement. Um, I think he was writing to both. I don't remember exactly the title, but uh, he had members in his church who were uh, in both parties. And he said, I'm writing to those of you who are elated and those of you who are deflated by this recent election. And what he was just trying to do is remind Uh, the world, quite frankly, his church in particular, that um, something we don't think of always, and that is this, you know, both parties have glimpses in their platforms of things that are beautiful to God. And both parties have things in their platforms that are uh, things that God detests, quite frankly. I mean, the the parties just don't represent God. They both uh, shine in some ways. They both fall short in some ways. And uh, he, he makes the point that it seems like every significant election cycle, uh, whether it's the Christian left or the Christian right, uh, it's very easy for some on both sides to say our party represents the Christian values of God and the other party doesn't. Right. And yet that begs the question, doesn't it, which, which values are we talking about? And then he does a wonderful job uh, in just a, a few sentences of, of helping us to see that both parties have 
truly beautiful aspects that represent well the kingdom of God. Let me just run through this with you. Um, He says this, are we talking about justice and protection for the unborn? And then he flips to the other side. Or are we talking about justice and protection for the poor? Both things absolutely right before the Lord to do. And yet it's clear that the different parties emphasize different things. He goes on to say this, um, is it the right to hold private property or is it our obligation to care for foreigners and aliens in our midst? Both things are, are truly biblical principles. Is it promoting an environment in which every able-bodied person has the opportunity and obligation to earn his or her keep? Or is it promoting an environment in which just wages, equal pay for equal work, and basic human rights are guaranteed for all people everywhere? Do you see what he's doing? He's basically bouncing back and forth from the two different parties' platforms and saying both parties have things that are glorious to the Lord. They're truly biblical in principle. And what he goes on to say, and this is really very helpful for us, is this. Neither party, though, represents fully the biblical counsel of God on righteousness and on justice. We both fall short, and we both do things that are really beautiful in God's eyes because we're made in the image of God, and it can't help but happen. All right. Well, that's the, that's the first point I really want to make. My, you know, my exuberance on the one hand when one person was elected, my candidate, and my kind of discouragement when the next one was elected um, represented uh, in me um, my own, as I said, stupidity. I was too closely connected a political party with the righteousness and the justice of God, something that God would not do and would never let us do. But it's the second thing I want to talk to uh, with you more this morning. Second mistake I made, and that is this. I put way too much hope, way too much confidence in government. Uh, Now, I want you to know government is a good thing. God established government. It is to be used for the good of the people that are governed. And yet, there is only one ruler who can establish righteousness and justice in this land, and it's not the president, no matter how good and how competent a person that may be. It is God. It is the one who created the world and who is now uh, working even to restore the ruin of his glory that touched every aspect of his creation at the time of the fall. It is not, then, Obama reigns or If the Republican candidate had won, it's not Romney reigns. It is the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. That is the call of the psalmist here. And that's why we can rejoice rather than panic if our candidate didn't win. I'm speaking to some of you now with that. And that's why our rejoicing rejoicing should be in the Lord and not in the president if our candidate did win. I'm speaking to the others of you in here with that. And I think the thing that we need to recognize all the way through this is that God is working out his purposes regardless of what party is in power. And he will choose. This is what we need to recognize. He will use our leaders to do, to accomplish his purposes. One day, his righteousness, his justice will fill this earth. That is a promise. That's his promise. Now... I would imagine you've heard this uh, before the election. There were a number of pastors who preached these dreadful sermons um, who basically said, if you don't elect such and such a candidate, the United States is doomed. I mean, I heard so many of those sermons. You've heard them too. 
Man, I love having somebody who responds in the front row. It is wonderful. Bless you. Uh, would you come be a part of my church? <laughs> Alex, I won't steal him, brother. I'll leave him with you. Although I'd love to have him. Um, you know, there was this you know, sadly mistaken sense that the president is God. And they would never say that. And they certainly don't think they believe that. But, oh, gosh, how we, how we do. When we try to create fear in the congregations by saying, if you don't elect such and such a president, our country is just over. I mean, it's so sad. And it's such a low view of God. I mean, does, not, does God reign or does the president reign? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. I uh, read a few years ago a book by um, a man named Charles Drew. And he, he said this. He said, those who... Uh, bemoan the moral and social disintegration of American culture are often right. In other words, those who are concerned about the culture, the moral uh, fiber of our country, are often right. And we should be, of course, concerned. But when they speak to us in such a way as to stir up fear and panic in our hearts, they're absolutely wrong. Um, Our God reigns, and therefore we need not, we must not be afraid as we exercise our civic responsibilities, no matter what seems to be going on all around us. He goes on to say then, you know, here's the damage with something like that. It it pushes us to think as though there can be short-term answers to a very long-term problem. Look, the the problem is not going to be solved until Christ returns. And and then we're going to know what righteousness and justice really looks like. Now, we are to be involved in the process of hopefully transforming our community, our world. But nevertheless, um, when, we, when we, put, we try to put fear in people based on the next president, not only are we diminishing God, but we're also causing people to look for solutions that simply are not there. The psalm we're looking at today makes it clear that God's reign will one day be fully established on this earth. But that will not happen until, at least completely, until Christ returns. And that may be tomorrow. It may be centuries from now. We don't know. I mean, the the Word of God has been very careful not to tell us when that's going to happen. And, you know, when that does happen, it is going to be the most beautiful day for those of us in the Lord that we have ever witnessed. We only only have hints of what is to come. Uh, And yet, um, it will not happen fully until he does come. And this is the point I guess we need to agree on, and we do. No political party is going to bring that about. It's just not. Does government have a legitimate role to play in God's economy? Of course it does. Are we to be involved in all aspects of life, including government? Yes. But we've got to do so without making an idol of government. In verse 7, the psalmist says, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Now, Every one of us in this room struggles with idolatry at some level. Uh, Every one of us. Uh, One person said that, um, I'm sure Alex will remember this, John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. You know, sometimes we put our trust in um, money or a person or a president. And yet, um, well, I don't know. Have you ever seen pictures of the the idols, the images in, in the Old Testament? Old Testament era. I, I remember thinking as a kid, there were these little eight-inch um, statues that looked like you know, your child in kindergarten made them. There was nothing real attractive about them. And yet people bowed down to them and worshipped them. And you know, even the people of God at times bowed down to them and worshipped them. I used to think as a young Christian, why in the world did they do that? Well, here's why. 
we all want something to trust in that we can see. And God has not given us a glimpse of himself other than in Christ when he was here. And we can't see him now. And so we're looking for something or someone to trust in we can see. And the president, quite frankly, is someone we can see. And we tend, it's okay to have hope in your president, by the way. We should be praying for our president. Uh, It's okay to believe that our president will actually bring about good in our country. We hope for that. But ultimately, he can only do so much. And we cannot make an idol out of him because that will put a burden on him that he simply cannot bear up under. He cannot. Uh, Only God can. He's the only one who is able to meet the expectations, the longings of our hearts. You know, I think, um, how do we see idolatry regarding politics? It comes around about every four years, doesn't it? Um, I I saw it uh, in my own heart when I was both thrilled, rejoicing in my candidate. Surely the kingdom of God is on its way. Uh, I I, I saw it in my my own heart when my candidate didn't win. Surely the kingdom of God was just going to disappear from this land. You know, that's ridiculous, of course, and it's not the way God works. Um, but here's where, here's where you see it um, in our country now uh, in a way that is um, horrendous. You've all probably heard conversations, been in conversations where there is so much hatred for the president or for his party, if it's not your party. And when we have that kind of anger, an irrational kind of anger, uh, it, it's, it says that there's, there's an idol in our hearts and that we have looked to government to be what only God can be. Uh, that's what causes that kind of anger. Um, so God, you know, in his wisdom says, please don't trust in things that cannot meet your expectations. Trust in me. Um, I, uh, you know, I want to kind of review just for a minute. I, am, I teach history. I teach church history. So I'm going to do at least a little five-minute history lesson. Is that okay? <laughs> I mean, you know, there are some great things in our past in this country that give us cause to be excited about what the church can do. So let me just mention a couple of those, one of which uh, comes from a book uh, written by Cal Thomas. And uh, I'm, this is kind of, actually what I'm going to read from him is a little bit sad, but then a little bit encouraging. Um, he was behind, you, me- you remember the name Jerry Falwell, no doubt, kind of head of the moral majority back in the 1980s. Well, Cal Thomas was his spokesman. He was kind of the right-hand man for Jerry Falwell. And as he's come out of that and looked back on that, he, he has written about so many of the flaws in that movement. Uh, were there some good things in the movement? Of course. But listen to what he said. In the 1980s, and this is, what's, this is what happens when we make an idol out of government. Uh, the moral majority played right into that. And uh, this is what he said. In the 1980s, people were led to believe that changing government leadership would keep their teenage daughters from getting pregnant, would clean up television, would reduce drug use, and would restore morality to America. They believed it because we in the majority, moral majority, knew they wanted to believe it, so we convinced them it could happen. Now, he goes on to say we are to fulfill our responsibilities as citizens of this land. We are to be involved, but a crisis of moral authority will not be solved by, will not be solved by an appeal to political power. Our public interest depends directly on the private virtues of our people. In other words, this is what he's saying. He's saying, if you just enact laws to change the morality of this country and the people in the country don't really abide by that, it makes almost no difference whatsoever. So where where he's going with all this is, is saying, look, if you really want to change the laws of this land, then change the people of this land. 
And if you and I are living in a righteous way, in a just way before the world, um, we have the opportunity to make differences in the people in our neighbors, our next door neighbor, the people across the street, the people where we work, the places you know where we go to school. And eventually then, if that's the case, then you kind of, um, laws will eventually come about that reflect the people in the land. And, and then those laws can be maintained. Then those laws can really do some good. He gives the example of uh, abortion in this country. Now, um, this will be shocking to probably most of you, but if we go back to 1860, about 150, 155 years ago, uh, I, you'll be surprised at this, but the abortion rate was just as high as it is now in this country in 1860. Um, you could see advertisements for abortion in the reputable newspapers. You could hear intellectual leaders, including clergy, promoting abortion as a viable option um, like it's done today. So um, between 1860, though, and 1910, 50 years, the abortion rate in this country was cut in half. How was that done? Not by legislating against it, though that eventually happened. That abortion rate continued at a very low rate until the 1960s in this country. So great uh, goodness, great help was brought. Now, how did they do it? Again, not primarily through legislation, but through providing caring, compassionate alternatives for women who became pregnant who didn't have resources. Uh, To give you an example of that, you have the YWCA, the Florence Crittenden Homes, you have... Um, the Salvation Army, who were uh, focused firstly on prostitutes and then on also on urban women who became pregnant and didn't have the resources to care for themselves. And uh, just in um, from between 1833 and 1933, you have um, the Florence Crittenden homes uh, taking care of half a million women who had gotten into trouble. This was the ministry of the Lord taking care of his people in a wonderful way. And, um, and here's one of my favorite things is uh, one of the, you know, you may know the name uh, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the late 19th century. He would carry around, and others would do this as well, names and addresses of families who said, we will be glad to take in a woman who needs help if you just let us do that. Give them our names. Give them our addresses. And that happened all over this country. And it affected this country for good in such a wonderful way that eventually the laws of the land changed reflecting what the culture was. And it it was sustained for a very long time in this country. made a tremendous difference. One more quick example of that uh, much more recently, and that is in uh, the 1960s in this country. Uh, In in that time, uh, rooted primarily in the African-American churches in this this land, there was such a, a... It's been called a movement of conscience. Uh, You had, through the African-American churches primarily, uh, a movement that transformed this country for uh, for the better. And here's where, where, quite frankly, when people tell me, well, our country has just gone down and down and down. We're just so much worse than we used to be. No, we're not. Uh, In some ways, we are. In some ways, we are so much better than what we used to be. And you think about the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act that came about as a result of African-American churches in this country uh, standing up to oppressive state governments at times, being willing to sacrifice themselves at times, being willing to say, look, we are all made in the image of God, and therefore we should all be treated with respect. They did so much more than that, but they sacrificed greatly for the people in this country. And what happened as a result is this country woke up and recognized how sinful we had been. 
for so many years with respect to treating each other with respect. And then laws were passed. And can you imagine going backwards on the Voting Rights Act or the Civil Rights Act? I mean, it's who we are now, not perfectly. We've got a long ways to go, but it's more who we are. All right, let me, let me finish with this. We must not make an idol out of government. We just cannot do it. Uh, nor should we make an idol out of our own efforts to transform society. I mean, we are limited to, to a large degree what we can do. The Lord reigns. He alone is worthy of our ultimate trust. But we are told in verse 10, and I'll, I'll finish with this, we are told to hate evil in every form that we find it. We bear the image of God. You know what that means? It means that when people see us, they should see God. By the way we live, by the way we relate to our neighbor, by the way we treat people that we have vast disagreements with. And therefore, as his image bears in the world, we should seek to advance the cause of God's gracious, gracious agenda of righteousness and justice in this world and not our own agendas. He is moving, and this is the promise, he is moving all of history to a glorious conclusion where righteousness and justice will be obvious and evident throughout the earth. But even now, you and I are to salt this earth with that same glorious righteousness and justice. And that means we should serve in every area of legitimate life. We should involve ourselves in politics. It is a right thing to do. Uh, we should pass good laws. We should appoint good judges who will uphold those laws. We should vote. But as followers of Christ, we have to recognize by now that no external change, no just changing of the laws is going to make it right. You know, here's, our, here's the way this idol comes out. We think if we just get the right people in office, if they just, just pass the right laws and appoint the right judges, everything's going to be okay. Well, not necessarily. But as we've been talking about, if we will change our culture and seek for God's reign to minister to people all over this world, then real lasting change can occur when we pass righteous laws that reflect who we already are. Even though our political leaders may fail us, and even if our efforts to transform society for the better fail, the last word goes to the psalmist, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Even if we elect a president one day who denies altogether that there is a God, and even if we elect a president one day who succeeds in enacting all kinds of laws that are clearly anti-Christian, this president will never ever have enough power to stop the ever-advancing reign of our king. The righteous, just rule of God will one day fill the earth. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you again for this congregation and for the fact that we represent different backgrounds, and yet there is such sweetness here and unity in you. And I pray that you would make this such a beacon of light in this community that the world would look upon this and say there is real hope for real change. And that change, Father, may it be coming to know the one who unites us regardless of our barriers, Jesus Christ. Amen.